The memories that burn hottest aren't always the milestones. Some were, to be sure, walking down the aisle together when I tripped and she caught me. The whole church laughed. Dr. Ephelis telling us she heard two heartbeats on the ultrasound, burying Sparky in the backyard as we held each other and cried. But the everyday experiences stand out just as much. She taps her knees while reading the paper and has never failed to burn toast. She can raise one eyebrow, but not the other, and claims to be one quarter witch. The thoughts all flood me at once as she clutches my hand and begs me not to go. But I've held on long enough. The fire has engulfed the entire car, and I escaped, but her leg is stuck, so I pry her fingers from mine and step away as she screams and burns, but there's nothing I can do. Sleepless in another dimension. A dimension of horror, cursed to be frightened and disturbed. A journey into a terrifying land whose boundaries are inky darkness. Your next stop, the No Sleep Zone. Now open the door. And brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. light and shadow. I'm David Cummings, and this is the No Sleep Zone. It's always so romantic to hear a husband speak so glowingly about his wife. After all these years, he still thinks she's hot. A tribute to love from author P.F. McGrail. From the tale which was this episode's cold open, Body Heat, performed by Peter Lewis. We welcome you to the next stop in Season 18's journey through the decades of old-time television. We have arrived in the 1960s, a time when one particular TV show took people on strange, thought-provoking, and sometimes terrifying journeys. It was, and some might think still remains, the gold standard of anthology television. But I like to say it's silver. Surling silver, as it were. <laughs> Well, we hope you celebrate the 60s with us, especially for those wonderful people lucky enough to be born in this delightful decade. <clears throat> and speaking of delightful, we are honored to welcome a special guest artist to this episode. Aralee Brighton is a dynamic, award-winning recording artist and voiceover talent known throughout the video gaming and soundtrack industries. 
She was recognized amongst her global peers and achieved the Artist of the Year Video Game Music Award in 2015. Brighton's voice is also featured in one of the world's biggest games, Minecraft, and her work can be heard in Rift, Siberia 3, and various other AAA video games. Aralee teamed up with our maestro Brandon Boone to perform two songs which Brandon wrote for this episode's final tale, Sing For Us Soon Again. We're grateful to have the musical talents of both Brandon and Aralee for this very special story. And so, it's the 60s, and we're psyched. Now, that's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop awaits as the horror begins. In our first tale, we head down the shore. It's summer, after all, and the sand and surf is a great way to enjoy some family fun. But, as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Matt Ty. There is danger at the shore, and it's not just the riptides and sharks in the water. Performing this tale are David Alt, James Cleveland, Erica Sanderson, and Andy Cresswell. So put on your sunscreen, enjoy yourself, and remember all those good times as you make beach memories. I blink in surprise. Sure, the summer sun is hot and bright and glints off the water, but I don't think it should make the whitewash look that pale pink colour. But then the next wave crashes and whatever it was disappears. It's only a tiny stretch of beach, but it's still surprising there are not a few more people. There were several cars parked in the wide clearing just over the dunes, and I can see... Two piles of belongings on the little beach as well, towels and bags and an umbrella that has fallen sideways, but the owners are not in evidence. There is an old couple a little ways away from me, though. She is wearing a big floppy hat, and they lay out their beach gear with the unconscious synchronicity of lifelong partners. The old guy smiles at her in an absent sort of way. It's sweet, but for some reason it makes me uneasy, like I'm forgetting something important. There is one other group that has just arrived, a family. Mum, dad, a teenage girl. As I'm watching, the girl laughs and runs from mum, her long brown hair streaming out behind her. She dives into the water, straight into a cresting wave, and just for a moment, I'm sure the foaming water flashes pink again. She doesn't come up. Her mother falters in her pursuit, looks around for a moment, and then turns back to dad. She says something and they both laugh and flop down onto their towels. I stare at them and then at the small breaking waves. The girl doesn't surface. Mum lays back and closes her eyes. Dad reaches into a bag and pulls out a paperback. Just down from them, the old woman, sans hat, is thigh deep in the water. I take a few steps towards Mum and Dad looking between them and the water. The girl has been under for a long time. Hey. Dad looks up from his book. Yes? Can I help you? I take a few more steps towards them, glancing pointedly at the water as I do so. You, um, you aren't worried? She's been under for a long time now. 
Dad has the same brown hair and open, honest face as his grinning daughter, but he isn't smiling. Who? Now Mum is sitting up and looking at me curiously. Your daughter? She dove in. Dad's frown deepens, but it's Mum who responds. We don't have a daughter. I don't know what to say. Then it makes sense and I shake my head. They are wasting time. Whoever the girl was, is. It's Dad that replies this time and there is a guarded note to his voice as he slowly stands up. We are here alone. I stare at them both and they stare back. Finally, I look down and see something. I point. You have three towels laid out. Mum looks down at the three towels. One with red stripes, one green, one blue. Obviously a set, but she shakes her head. I don't know who owns that red towel. They look at each other and I can read their thoughts loud and clear. They think I'm a crazy person. I point out at the water. Look, I don't know what's going on, but a girl dove in and hasn't come up. I thought she was with you. You, you chased her. Even as I say it, I realize how weird it sounds. Dad looks at Mum and then he bends and grabs their towels. He leaves the third one, but I notice Mum's gaze seems to slide away from that red striped towel like she doesn't want to see it. I look past them. The old woman is now standing a little deeper in the water, but she is watching us. Her husband has done one better and come on over. Ask them. Dad frowns at me and then turns. When I look again, the old lady is gone, and I get a glimpse of pink foam as a wave breaks where she had been standing. Them? The old man steps up next to Dad. I'm here by myself. I argue, of course. I point out the big bag and the floppy straw hat sitting with the old guy's gear down the beach. Not mine. But I can see him frown a little. Just like the mum, his gaze slides away from the unclaimed beach accoutrements and back to me. You're scaring these nice people. Mum and Dad nod, but I'm not paying them much attention. I'm looking at the water, the small crashing waves and the foaming whitewash. There are no flashes of pink. There is still no girl and no old lady. And I am scared too. My hands shake as I unlock my car. I keep seeing the way Mum didn't want to see that red-striped towel and the way the old man's eyes slid away from that floppy straw hat. I keep seeing those flashes of pink. As I settle into the driver's seat, I realize I've left whatever I took to the beach back down there on the sand. I'm thinking about going back when my gaze settles on something else. It takes a moment for me to register what I'm looking at. A lipstick case sitting in the console between the front seats. That feeling of forgetting something has come back, and as I stare at the lipstick, all I can think of is that first pink flash of foam on the water. I glance in the rearview mirror, but then I let my gaze slide away. I know I came to the beach alone. I know I'm single. And there is no reason I know for a child's booster seat to be in the back of my car.
Imagine growing up in a town with a restaurant that you thought served the best food ever. Now imagine the pain of knowing you'll never taste it again after the restaurant closed. That sets the scene for this tale, shared with us by author Hans A. Carpenter. You see, two brothers discover a second location of their favorite long-lost restaurant, one which promises to serve them up some fondly remembered pizza. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula and Atticus Jackson. So let's get ready for some cheesy, crusty delights as we head out for one more slice at Enzo's. It's funny, the way food and memory go hand in hand. Can you sum your childhood up in one dish? See, I absolutely can. A pepperoni pan pizza from Enzo's Pizzeria. When you're a kid, going out to eat is a treat. When you grow up poor like my brother and I, it's even more of a treat. Now, we weren't destitute, but in a family firmly planted in the low end of middle class, it was a big deal to go out to a restaurant. Enzo's was one of the only places accessible to us. Pizza is a great way to feed a family on a budget, so... Enzo's became our go-to. Birthday? Enzo's. Straight A's? Enzo's. I I guess over time, we began to associate anything positive with the trip to Enzo's. Maybe that's why it sticks out in my memory so much. Well, that, and it was just plain good. I've tried for a very, very long time to get a slice that holds up to Enzo's, and I don't know if it's the kitty nostalgia goggles, but... Nothing compares. The cheese, the pepperoni that would crisp and curl up a bit on the edges, the pan crust that would brown just right. It was magical. It broke our hearts when Enzo's burned down. It was your run-of-the-mill kitchen fire in the middle of the night. Nobody was hurt, luckily. Still, Enzo's never reopened. The remains were bulldozed and became an extension lot for the neighboring car dealership. Mikey and I would reminisce about Enzo's from time to time. As much as I loved the place, I think Mikey loved it more. He was older than me after all, so his memories had to be even stronger. I guess that's why he was practically giddy when he called me in the middle of a workday with news that couldn't wait. Mikey, is everything alright? What are you doing on Saturday? For Christ's sake, I mean, couldn't you just text me? No, no, no. You can't text something like this. Tommy, we're going to Enzo's. Wait, what? Turns out it was a franchise. All these years we thought it was just some mom and pop shop, but but it's a franchise. Well, not much of one anymore. Turns out there's still one left. It's a six hour drive, but but it's Enzo's. Wait, are you sure it's not just a pizzeria that happens to be called Enzo's? It can't be that uncommon of a name. I looked at their website and Facebook page. It's definitely our Enzo's. Come on, we'll get a slice Saturday. I don't... Tommy, come on. Please? Mike wasn't begging. He was too proud to do that. Still, I knew him enough to know that tone, that directness, how much this meant to him. Sure, I'm in. 
Mikey needed this, I knew that much. The last year had been brutal for him. The divorce was bad enough, but seeing his ex pregnant again was, was just too much. They had tried to get pregnant for years. Eventually, they drifted apart and she moved on. Mikey didn't. Going to Enzo's was the first time I'd heard him excited about anything in a very long time. How could I take that away from him? When Saturday came around, I offered to drive, but Mikey wouldn't have it. He wanted to leadfoot his way to the last Enzo's on Earth, and he wanted to prove Google Maps wrong in the process. The ride felt like old times. We talked about our favorite memories of Enzo's, from playing the Guns N' Roses pinball machine to winning bouncy balls in the quarter baseball game. Mostly, we talked about those amazing pizzas and celebrations with mom and dad. I wish they were still here to go with us one more time. The last hour of the ride, things got quiet. I was scanning the radio stations and You Look Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton was playing. I tried to move on quick, but Mikey stopped me. It was their song. Mikey started to tear up. Man, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I just... We wanted the kids so bad. I think she blamed me. And now, to know it was really my fault. Mikey, don't talk like that. No, it was. She gave birth last week. After all the miscarriages, I'm happy for her. Miscarriages? Plural? Three. Just about the time we thought we'd moved on from the last one, we'd try again. Things would be going smooth. We'd finally start hoping, planning for a new life. And then... Mikey had to pull off on the shoulder for a minute. There was nothing I could say. I just put my hand on his shoulder. After a minute or two, he just wiped his eyes and pulled back on the highway. Neither of us spoke for a long time after that. The closer we got to Enzo's, the more the heaviness in the air began to lift. Mike was practically giddy as he took the exit the GPS said was a half a mile from Enzo's. I admit I was getting pretty amped up myself. In 500 feet, the destination is on your right. We pulled into the parking lot, and the excitement in the car turned to confusion, then to despair. What we found was the shell of an old fast food joint, a Wendy's by the look of it, that had been repainted several times. From what we could see, the last tenants had been a Mexican restaurant. Mikey was sure the GPS had been wrong until I pointed out the silhouette of an E and S stained under the makeshift banner of the previous restaurant. Mikey got out and cupped his hands on the window while I aimlessly kicked rocks in the parking lot. Then he sighed and slumped against the door. He reached into his pocket and grabbed his phone. I don't get it. Yesterday there was a web page, a Facebook page, a Google business profile. Google even had it marked green for open today. It's all gone. All of it. Like, like it never existed. Mikey was on the verge of tears. All I wanted was a goddamn slice of pizza. 
Is that too much to ask? Look, this sucks. But let's get back on the road. Maybe we can at least get some pizza somewhere else or find a bar or something. Mikey didn't put up much resistance. We decided to take a slightly longer path home and avoid the freeway. We figured we could bump into somewhere cool along the way, taking the road less traveled. At least something that wasn't a Cracker Barrel or a Bob Evans. About two hours into our return trip, I had nodded off when Mikey slammed on the brakes. Holy shit! Did you hit something? No! Look! Holy shit was right. Here, on a two-lane highway in the middle of nowhere, sat a busy, vibrant Enzo's Pizzeria. Mikey pulled in and barely had the ignition turned before he was out of his seat and at the door. Inside, it looked just like our Enzo's. It was uncanny. The wood paneling, the stained glass fixtures, the checkered tablecloths were all just like I remembered. They even had the same vending machine and Guns N' Roses pinball. Kids were running around, families laughing, and the smell. I knew right away we were in the right place. We grabbed a booth and Mikey went all out on our order. He ordered two large pepperoni pans, one to take home, breadsticks, and cheesy garlic bread. I asked the server if they accepted Apple Pay. She looked very confused, but before she could answer, Mikey waved off my question. It's on me, bro. The food came surprisingly quickly, and it was incredible. It not only lived up to my childhood nostalgia, but surpassed it. This was the best pizza I had ever had, maybe the best meal, period. As satisfied as I was, Mikey was practically orgasmic. I stopped for a second to enjoy the surroundings and let it all sink in. And that's when I noticed something odd. An older couple by the door was staring at us. Not just staring, but glaring at us. I leaned in close to Mikey. Hey, you see those old people by the door? Is it just me or are they staring daggers at us? Mikey wheeled around to look over his shoulder. Way to be subtle, Mikey. Don't be a wuss. And yeah, they're definitely giving us the old evil eye. I glanced back at the couple, who hadn't broken their icy stare. What's their problem? They're old people. Old people are cranky. That explanation, crude as it was, may have been enough for me. It certainly was for Mikey, who went back to stuffing his face. But something just didn't sit right about that older couple. I looked back to catch their gaze when I noticed that not only were they still staring at us, but the table next to them was as well. It was a mother, father, and two little kids who had all quit talking and eating, and were staring at us with the same irritation as the older couple. I leaned in. Okay, this is getting weird. Now another table's looking. I know my table manners aren't the best, but am I that much of a pig? Mikey whirled around and lingered for just a moment. He tried waving at the family, who ignored him and never broke their gaze. Okay. That is a bit odd. Mikey slumped back for a second, thinking. Doesn't the dad look familiar? 
I locked eyes with the guy for an uncomfortable second. He had a long nose, thick-rimmed glasses, and brown hair, but otherwise looked unremarkable. Not really. I swear I know him from somewhere. You get a look at that Rams jersey? They haven't made those since the mid-90s, and it looks brand new. It's probably some throwback. I feel sorry for the poor bastard trying to hawk St. Louis Rams throwback jerseys. I swear, though, that guy looks really familiar. Mikey pulled out his phone. I took another bite of pizza and tried to ignore the staring patrons. It was unnerving. There's no amount of ignoring someone looking right at you that can erase the feeling of having someone's eyes trained on you. Can I help you? I blurted out rudely at the older couple. They didn't respond. They didn't even flinch. Now, I noticed more tables were starting to stare at us. Okay, Mikey, this is starting to freak me out. Tommy, I do know that guy. That's Jack Phillips from back home. I don't know him. Yeah, you wouldn't. He died when I was 14. Wait, what? You heard me. He killed himself in 1998. Bullshit. Here, look. Mikey thrust his phone in my face. Sure enough, there was a scanned article from 1998. The headline was, Father Murders Family Attacks First Responders. Right there at the top of the page was a family photo of a man with a long nose, brown hair, and thick, rimmed glasses. There was no doubt, this was the same guy currently sitting across the pizzeria from us. This was the same wife and kids. The article said that one November evening in 1998, Jack Phillips killed his wife Jeanette, his son Brandon, his daughter Brittany, and the family cat before setting the house on fire and jumping into the blaze. Okay, this photo does look a lot like those people over there. I slid the phone back. Mikey had his head in his hands. It doesn't look like them, Tommy. It is them. Mikey, are you trying to tell me that there is a table full of dead people sitting over there? Not just over there. It was just then that I noticed the restaurant had gotten uncomfortably quiet. The talking, the laughing, the ambient sound of conversation... It was all gone. Everyone in the restaurant was deathly quiet, and I noticed they were all staring at us now. Every single man, woman, and child in the whole restaurant. I guess you were too young to remember that old couple by the door. The ones you first noticed. That's Pearl and Donnie Harris. They lived down the street from us. They died when we were kids too. Donnie used to give me half dollars when I had lemonade stands. Okay, I'm officially freaked out. Brandon Phillips. I used to see him all the time at the pool. We weren't friends, but I saw him a lot. Okay, Mikey, we officially need to leave. Tommy. Oh my god. That's Tyler Lloyd. Mikey pointed over my shoulder. Sure enough, there was Tyler Lloyd. He was a kid my age who had died in high school. 
He got wasted at a party and fell asleep on a pool raft after everyone had left his house. His mom found him the next day. She killed herself a few years later. And she was sitting across the table from Tyler right this very fucking second, staring at us. Jesus, Mikey, what the fuck are we gonna do? We have to make a break for it or something. I, I don't know what these people want, but considering they're all dead and we aren't, it's probably not good. Plus, they all look pissed. I may as well have been talking to myself, because Mikey was miles away. He seemed to have locked eyes on the far corner of the room. Tears were welling up in his eyes. Mikey? Beth is here. I followed Mikey's gaze across the room to a young brunette in a no-doubt t-shirt. It was Beth, all right. Mikey's high school sweetheart. She died in a motorcycle crash this senior year. She didn't want to stay at that party. I was too drunk to drive, and I didn't want to leave. She wanted to drive my car home, but I didn't want to have to catch a ride in the morning. I talked her into hopping on the back of Brian's bike. She didn't want to, and she'd be alive right now if I had just let her take my car. We'd never spoken about it. I knew the general details, but I'd never heard Mikey talk about it. I used to think my brother and I were close, but to this day I hate that I never talked to him about the stuff that mattered. Mikey carried a lot on his shoulders, and I never really knew it. Then again, I never really asked. Look, Mikey, we need to focus. The door isn't blocked, so let's just get up and walk calmly to the exit. If anyone moves, run for it, okay? Mikey's gaze never left Beth. I snapped my fingers. Focus! We're gonna walk calmly to the door, get in the car, and get the hell out of here. If they move, we run. Agreed? I... Yeah. Let's go. Mikey and I finished our beers and stood up as calmly as we could given the circumstances. I crossed over the table and beckoned Mikey out of the booth and toward the door. No one tried to stop us. Instead, their gazes follow us as we inched forward. That's when I stopped cold. Standing next to the register at the back of the building were our parents. They were young, much younger than when they had died. Early thirties, I guessed. They weren't glaring like the rest. Their expressions were much softer, with the hint of sadness. Mikey saw them too. We both stared back at mom and dad for a good long moment before I grabbed Mikey's arm. That's not them, Mikey. Come on, we need to go. Reluctantly, Mikey moved with me slowly toward the door. By now, the rest of the restaurant were on their feet, not in a threatening manner. They were just watching. They didn't look angry anymore. Just as I was about to open the door, we could hear a baby crying in the distance. The wails pierced the thick silence. Mikey stopped dead in his tracks. I tugged on his arm, but he was planted. Mikey grabbed my hand and shoved his keys into my palm. I'm not going, Tommy. Mikey, you don't belong here. These people are dead. 
No. I don't belong out there. Please. I'm not leaving you. You have a lot to look forward to. I have a lot to look back on. We're just heading in different directions. I'll miss you, little bro. I love you. There was no changing his mind. The dead were almost on us now, slowly walking and converging. It was now or never. I love you too, Mikey. Take care of yourself, Tommy. And hey, the pizza was pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I turned around to look at my brother one more time. He was sobbing now, in a group hug with Mom, Dad, and Beth. I miss Mikey every day, but I'll never forget that feeling of peace I got knowing that he was where he needed to be. I closed the door, and the lights at Enzo's went out, leaving a dark, empty restaurant. When I got back to Mikey's car, I looked back. Enzo's was gone. I'm sure soon the parking lot will be too. I got back on the road. I didn't worry about how I would explain my brother's disappearance or why there was a box of takeout from a dead pizza chain on the passenger seat. I just thought about my brother being happy for the first time in many, many years. I thought about how I was going to hug my wife and boys just a little tighter that night. It really was a damn good pizza. In the podcast world, it's one of the most popular genres with millions of listeners around the world. Of course, I'm talking about horror fiction podcasts. No, no, no that's, that's my biased opinion. No, I'm actually referring to true crime podcasts. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Alec Bloom, we discover a true crime podcast episode where the host interrogates a man who confessed to murdering his family. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Graham Rowett, Jeff Clement, and Mary Murphy. So let's listen in to hear all the gory details of this one. Turn up the volume, because this is what evil sounds like. Long past the midnight hour on February 13th, 1993, a Midwest family of four was savagely butchered in their sleep. When the sun eventually peeked over the horizon onto the quaint, idyllic farming community of Zabriskie, Iowa, their bodies were discovered by the town's paper boy while out on his early morning route. Dylan Frost, 17, lay face down on the curb, drenched in his own blood presumably attempting to flee the scene by way of his father's rusted-out pickup truck. 
Significant blood loss from 23 stab wounds proved too much. He never made it to the truck. Inside the house, his 15-year-old brother, Michael, never made it out of bed. His throat slashed one time, neat and clean. His mother, Claire, suffered a similar fate. She, however, had at least made it to the bedroom floor where she crawled around aimlessly, unknowingly in circles, and eventually bled out onto a mangy area rug styled with faded camouflage print. Just off the master bedroom, in the hallway bathroom, the smell of cheap beer and last night's bowel movement overpowered the stench of death where the family's patriarch was found lifeless, slumped atop his throne. The killer's knife lodged into his neck. Claire's husband, Zachariah Frost, suffered hardship his entire life, but suffered the least of them all that night, already passed out pissed drunk on the toilet when the blade pierced his Adam's apple. Four dead Frosts, one traumatized paperboy. Scared shitless, he ran next door to the Vercamps, the elderly retired couple and near-decade-long neighbor to the Frost family. But much to that young, terrified paperboy's dismay, he was not greeted by an aging, American-Gothic ma-and-pa farm couple eager to comfort a panicked kid in distress. For it was this year the Vercamps decided to buck trend and spend an extended family holiday with their eldest daughter and newborn grandson in the desert, Phoenix. But as it turns out, their rustic Iowa home was not empty on this particular February morning. Inside, the rotary phone's obnoxiously persistent off-the-hook tone was heard, and a fifth body was found. A fifth frost. But this one was very much alive, and watching Saturday morning cartoons in the Verkamp's TV room. X-Men. A boy of only 11, his name, unfortunately, was Jack. Jack B. Frost. A silly name awarded by a drunken father fighting demons and debt. Jack was the youngest, the one they never wanted, the one they couldn't afford, the one sitting on the Verkamp's posturepedic recliner splattered in blood, not his own. Shortly after the sheriff arrived, young Jack needed no arm-twisting nor corrupt police tactics to coerce a confession. He offered up his guilt freely and almost immediately. I say almost because he didn't utter a single word until the second of back-to-back X-Men episodes came to an end. While the credits rolled, Jack's beans spilled. Every kill, every detail... He wasn't in shock. He wasn't remorseful. He was simply stating fact. First to go was his brother, Michael, then brother Dylan, then his mother, and finally his father, Zachariah. Before he knew it, the deed was done, just in time for his Saturday morning cartoons. Of course, the question of why was asked of young Jack. His answer was strange. Mostly because it wasn't so much an answer as it was more a curious question of his own. Do they have phones in prison? The trial came soon after. Very soon. Some believe too soon. 
It was as if everyone touched by this tragedy just wanted to get the damn thing over with and get back to their normal, less heinous life. The details of the case were so unbelievably gruesome, grisly, and, quote, just not something that happens around here, end quote, so they said. They also said, they being the judge and jury, that young 11-year-old Jack B. Frost simply could not have committed those murders. Even with his detailed confession, they didn't believe him. They didn't want to. Survivor's guilt, it was determined. From the depths of his fractured psyche, Jack conjured up a tale of bloody murder so radical it simply could and would not be accepted as truth by a panel of his, albeit, considerably older peers. And believe it or not, the town of Zabriskie rallied around Jack B. Frost and showered the boy with blind, unabashed support. And I say, believe it or not, because here in America, we've grown rather accustomed to vocal, public mobs demanding heads on spikes by way of immediate arrest and execution of the first and oftentimes only suspect taken into police custody. Satanic cults, for example, tend to make great scapegoats around these parts. Though there is something to be said for how satisfying, how undeniably effective knee-jerk blind justice can be in quelling the rage and fear of a traumatized community. But not in Zabriskie, Iowa. No, they weren't having any part of it. The years passed. Life went on and got back to normal. After all, that is what everyone wanted. But normal proved not good enough for Zabriskie, as the little farming town would soon succumb to widespread drought and crippling bankruptcy. As its elder townsfolk passed, the younger generation moved on. Its already minuscule population dwindled rapidly until there was but only one resident left still standing. Jack B. Frost. It's 2022, February 13th. Beard graying and stomach bulging, Jack is now 40 years old. As I speak, an Amazon package is being dropped off at his front stoop. I know this because I can see him peering through his bay window as the disgruntled FedEx driver walks back to the delivery truck. Yes, I am currently sitting in my car with my trusty, dutiful podcast producer, Pete, watching and waiting for Jack to surface. And why exactly are we here today of all days? Because it's been 29 years to the day, and Jack B. Frost the lone survivor and only known suspect of the Frost Four murders, still maintains his guilt. And I, Sherry Lynn Nance, want to talk to him. This is what evil sounds like. Slow down, Sherry. We don't want to come off pushy again, like with the last guy. 
not pushy, Pete. I'm intrepid. Yeah, sure. But we don't want to spook this guy. The point of this podcast is to help people distinguish the good from the evil, right? Red flags. All evil folk have them. It's my job to point out those flags. And in order for our listeners, the good people, to accurately identify what evil sounds like, I have to push a few buttons. Hey, grab his Amazon package. It'll be like we're bearing gifts. Or holding it for ransom. An intrepid podcaster's gotta do what an intrepid podcaster's gotta do. Now, smile. But not like that. Damn it, Pete Smaller. Not so creepy. There you go. Mr. Frost? Mr. Jack B. Frost? It's Sherry Lynn Nance. We spoke on the phone. I was in the neighborhood and thought today would be a good day to have that sit-down we talked about for the podcast. Oh, you, uh, you want to do that today? Yeah, I think it's time. May we come in? We have your package. That you do. We came all this way just to see you, Mr. Frost. All I want to do is talk. It'll be quick and painless, I swear. You won't feel a thing. You have my word. Fine. Come on in. But he needs to stop smiling. Of course. Stop being weird. <laughs> oh, this is... Oh, it has a nice country feel to it. Homey. Lived in. Never would have believed that this... That it was a murder house? Well, yeah. Should I take my shoes off, or...? Worried about contaminating the crime scene? No, I, I just... Can I have my package? Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. Need help getting it open? <gasps> I carry a blade for just such an occasion. You get a lot of deliveries out here, do you? Not as many as I used to. Anything good? What is that? DVDs? Did you send this to me? Uh, no. FedEx guy did. What is it? Not something you ordered? It is not. And the name on the return address is obviously fake. Jean Grey. Who's Jean Grey? Oh, she's an X-Men. Uh, also known as... Phoenix. Oh, like Rise from the Ashes, Phoenix? Did you do this? Do what? Send me a box set of the animated X-Men series. Now why would I do that? What kind of show is this again? As I told you earlier on the phone, we seek out admitted murderers, such as yourself, and just sit down with them for a nice little chat. Get to know what they're really like. Find out what makes them so special. And hopefully we'll all learn a little something about ourselves along the way. Special? Special, yeah. Find out what sets you apart from everyone else. I'm not different. I'm not special. Oh, I beg to differ, but hey, maybe I'm wrong. It's all up to what the listeners believe anyway, isn't it? A lot of people going to be listening to this thing. Do you listen to many podcasts? I do not. Well, not to boast too much, but we currently have the largest listenership on every major platform. Kind of a big deal, this true crime genre. And we just so happen to be the ones on top ruling the roost. 
Some even say it's the podcast people need right now. It's all pretty crazy, really. I simply tell people to spread the word and subscribe, and they do it. And it's actually grown into quite the following. They must like what they hear, I guess. Hell, these days I'm bigger than Serial and Rogan combined. What's Rogan? The hair stuff? Uh, uh-huh, yeah. Why don't we go ahead and get started? Sound good? Not really. But you're here, so follow me. Right channel. Yeah. Okay, good, good. All right. Do, do I speak into this, then? Uh, not right into it, but when I ask you a question, yes. Don't be nervous. You'll do fine. Sure. Okay. We all good, Pete? Yeah, we're all good. <clears throat> Mr. Frost... In 1993, you killed four people in cold blood. As an 11-year-old boy, you confessed as much back then, and today, 29 years on the dot, you are sticking to that story. Is that correct? <sighs> Am I speaking out of turn here? Mr. Frost, did I say something Please, that- Please, would you not call me Mr. Frost? Oh, would you prefer Jack, then? If you're gonna throw around cold-blooded puns and chilling tales of murder lines or whatever you have up your sleeve, I'd be far more comfortable with Jack. Yes, please. Of course. Thank you. Jack, you murdered your family. You admit it. They are dead by your hand. Is that the truth? It is the truth. With... With the boning knife my father gave me for Christmas two months earlier, yes. The knife he more than likely stole out of Walmart's hunting section. That was your present? Well, it was for all of us to share, which meant it was his. So it wasn't actually your knife? Nothing in that house was mine. This house, you mean? This house, yes. You had two brothers, correct? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know how this works, but is this whole thing going to be questions you already know the answers to? I'd like to lay the groundwork of your story first, for the audience, before we build upon it with the more engrossing, probing questions. I prefer to ease into it nice and slow before we jump into the deep end, if I'm being honest. I appreciate your honesty and understand the logic, but would you mind building faster, please? Okay, I can do that. Thank you. During your trial, you stated on the record that a woman called the house around 1.30 in the a.m. You answered. What did this woman have to say? Not much, really. Other than to kill my parents and my brothers. It wasn't a terribly long conversation. That was it? No. no she left me with one final instruction. She said after it was over not to worry. And to leave, and to go do something fun before the cops found me. Said that would make me feel better. Make me feel... happy. Something fun? Like watch Saturday morning cartoons all by your lonesome at the neighbor's house? 
I'd never even seen an episode in its entirety before, let alone two. It was nice. Did you feel better? After? For a while, there was a relief. A sort of clarity. For a while. Who was the woman on the other end of that phone? I don't know. She was young, I think. Disguised her voice. Never gave a name. Curious. Do you typically do whatever strange women on the phone tell you to do? Sherry? Sorry. What I meant to ask. Had anything similar happened before this? Or after? Not that I'm aware of. Are you sure? Why? Don't you believe me? Oh, I'm just trying to establish whether or not any old person can persuade you to slaughter a group of four, no questions asked, or if it was just this one special person. Sherry. Sorry. Please, don't think I'm mocking here. No, far from it. Really, I'm only trying to understand what made her so special. And why? Why did you do what she said? Uh, I guess uh, what she was saying just made sense. Jack, was it your sister on the phone? I never had a sister. True, you never grew up with one. You didn't know her, but you had a sister. Jillian. And as I understand, she made it out just before you did. Out of the womb, that is. Beat you by a good 90 seconds, according to my records. No, I don't think so. You must have me mistaken with one of your other special guests. You really don't know, do you? There's nothing to know, other than the fact you're some whack-job conspiracy bullshitter looking for attention. Why on earth would I, or anyone, believe anything you, some random potter, has to say? You don't know a goddamn thing. I know they sold her and kept you. Which one of you was the lucky one? I'm not so sure. But that's what happened, Jack. You had a sister, and she's the one who called you that night and convinced you to murder your family. I thought you knew. That's bullshit. She's alive. What? Jack, I found her. Why? Why wouldn't my parents... Your parents were not good people, were they? They... what? Your parents, Jack. They were... They were parents. They weren't your parents for long, were they? Obviously. Have you killed since, Jack? Since? No. Do you want to kill again, Jack? Me? No, I... I never wanted to hurt anyone, but... But what? It doesn't matter what I want. Only what she wants, right? Jillian? I don't know who she is. And I don't care. You should. She helped you, didn't she? This isn't right. Do you want to talk to her, Jack? I don't want to do this anymore. What is there to be afraid of? I'm not scared. I'm not scared. Now that's bullshit. You think I'm lying? I fully admit to murdering four people, and you think I'm lying to you? Obviously. Fuck you. What are you so scared of, Jack? I'm not. Answer the fucking question. I don't want to kill anyone. I don't. Never did. 
You truly believe if she commands you to kill again, you will. Is that right? No personal accountability, no self-control. Is that what you're telling me? I don't know. How could you not know? I don't know! You were just a child, Jack. You're a grown man now. What is this power you think she has over you? She called. I answered. Then they were dead. They were all dead. Will you kill for her again? I don't know. Will you? I don't know! Let's find out. What? 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 What are you... Is this absolutely necessary? I'm only pushing a few buttons, Pete. That's all. Who are you calling? Now, why are you asking questions you already know the answers to, Jack? No. No, 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 please. Jillian. Oh, the podcaster. What do you want? Your name is Jillian, correct? Yeah, I suppose that's my name, darling. Jillian, as a barely newborn child in 1982, you were adopted. Is that also correct? Yeah, adopted, if you want to call it that. Is this the woman, Jack? Is this her voice? Is this your sister? I... I don't know. It was so long ago. Jillian, tell me. I want to hear it from your mouth. You called Jack B. Frost on the night of February 13th, 1993, and instructed him to kill his entire family. Didn't you? I did. Oh my god. Jillian, this is very important. I need you to do one more thing for me. Why would you call her? What is it, darling? What more could you possibly need from me? Hang up, Sherry. This is sick. Hang up the goddamn phone. Tell Jack to kill my podcast producer, Pete. Uh, what? Sherry, what the hell do you think you're doing? It's okay, Pete. Jillian, say it. Let's see what happens. Please. No. You're beyond unhinged. You know that. Jack. I'm begging you. No. Sherry! Oh, little Jackie boy. Please. Kill Pete for me. Stay the hell back! Don't even look at me, man. I'm serious. Just stay where you are. Pete. I'm not dying for a podcast. Pete. Calm down. He's not going to hurt you. Look at him. But what if... He would have done it by now. Just trust me. Sit. What the hell was that? Damn it, Sherry! I wanted to see what would happen. See if she could control him, and she can't. Of course she can't. This is good news, guys. Fuck. Come on, really? I was far from good, Sherry. Jesus Christ. How how do you know that was my sister? Or even the same woman from before? Well, that's fair. 
Pete, I have his sister's birth certificate in my bag, the manila envelope. Would you mind? Would I fucking mind? Pete. Fine. But you'll be looking for a new producer after today. Got it? There's your proof, Jack. Proof of what? Open it. What? What's this? Now that I think about it, I probably didn't need to pay her to say those things. Not sure I had to. Damn, could have saved myself 50 bucks. You paid who? That crazy Jillian lady? Like, as an actor? Jesus, Sherry. Why? Just in case. In case of what? In case she didn't do what I said. Is... Is this real? Huh? What... What's it say, Jack? This says... It says... Whose name is on that birth certificate, Jack? It says... Jillian. Jillian. Sherry. Lynn. Frost. No, that's not... Sherry, what are you trying to do to this guy? This isn't right. He needs help. Not whatever twisted mind game this is. This is... Evil. What does it mean? What does this mean? I'm so sorry, Jack. I'm sorry they kept you. In a fair, just world, we would have stayed together. You needed me. You need me. You need your big sister. Sh- Sherry? What do you want from me? I don't want to do this alone. Tell me! Jack, you're going to kill Pete now. How did that feel? I... I don't... You feel better. Trust me. You feel better. I feel... better. Good. So do I. Now, go sit down. Watch your superheroes. Every episode. You earned it. You know, that is the one and only thing I loved about my childhood. The TV. Because any time it was on, it meant their attention was focused solely on it and not on me. Growing up, my parents, the Nances, they were gross, unkind, evil. Living with them became too much for an 11-year-old girl to take. So I told them to kill themselves. I mean, just blurting it out was cathartic enough, but Jack, they actually went through with it. Well, luck, right? Then I ran, got the hell out of there, 
And soon after, I found you. I found my home. My real biological family. But you had it so much worse. And it wasn't just the parents. It was the brothers. Our blood brothers, Jack. How could they be blood when they were nothing like you and me and so much like them? Mean, vicious, fueled by hate and ignorance. Irredeemable, they were. None of it made any goddamn sense. It just wasn't fair. And it was in that moment, standing outside this very house, I realized I was truly lost. Alone. Utterly abandoned. I didn't know what else to do. So I made a call sometime after midnight with every intention of telling them all to off themselves right here in this shitty old house for the better of all humanity. Good riddance. But you answered the phone, Jack. You were so fragile. I didn't want to scare you any more than you already were. I wanted to give you power. I wanted you to be happy. So I told you to kill them. And you did. My God, it worked. Again. Yet, believe it or not, that scared me. I'm so sorry, Jack. But I ran. Again. From you, from myself, from this wicked power of mine I never fully appreciated until recently. For so long, I kept it buried, deep, never knowing what to do with it. Until now. There is just too much evil out there in this world, Jack. Murderers, rapists, thieves, and liars. I've met them all, spoken with them on this very podcast. Bad, bad people, a lot of them. But not us. We're different. Jack? There are others out there in need. Frightened people. In need of a big sister like me. I... No, we can help them. We are the good ones here. We can make this world a better place. You and I, Jack. Together. Brother and sister. I believe that. And so do you. And soon, so will the rest of the world. We just have to tell them what to do. All they have to do is listen. And they will. Every last one of them. Well, that was quite the episode, wasn't it? Best one yet, if I do say so myself. Yeah, Pete died. But it was for a good cause. A big thank you, as always, to my loyal, devoted followers for listening each and every week, hanging on to my every word. You truly know how to make a girl feel special. I've been your host, Sherry Lynn Frost, but you can call me Jill. Now, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and lay waste to everyone in your path. Annihilate every single person you see. Don't ask questions, don't hesitate, and don't worry, you'll feel so much better when the deed is done. We all will. Trust me. And if you're still around, I hope you'll join us next week for another spellbinding episode of This Is What Evil Sounds Like. Say goodbye, Jack. Goodbye.
When you're struggling with depression, it can feel like you're trapped without any hope of getting out of your funk. Maybe just completing a small task will help matters. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Justin Wayne Ratliff, one man decides to tidy up a long-neglected part of his house in hopes of improving his dark mood. Performing this tale is Matthew Bradford. So let's hear how things worked out for him as he tells us about cleaning out my closet. I'll just be honest, I'm a messy guy. I don't clean around the house often. I have clothes scattered all over my bedroom floor and don't even get me started on the closet. For probably a year now, I've just been slinging anything I don't need or wear in it. I can't even step into it anymore and it's roomy for a closet. I have the same rotation of shirts that I wear pretty much every week. I basically live out of the washer and dryer, so I never really go through any of my old clothes. But one day that changed. I was tired of being a depressed piece of shit, and I told myself, you're going to clean out your closet today. I figured I'd bag up all the stuff I don't need and drop it off at the school's youth service center. See, most people do goodwill, but I stopped doing that a long time ago. A youth service center gives out everything that's donated to kids who really need it for free, instead of selling it for a profit. I don't know, it just seems the morally right option. I had the day off work, so when my alarm went off at 7.05, I went to the kitchen, made a large cup of coffee, and went to the bedroom. God, this was a wreck. I looked at the abundance of shirts, blue jeans, gym clothes, etc. littering the floor and then walked over to the closet and opened it. And when I did, a pile of clothes spilled out like an avalanche. How did I ever let it get this bad? I sipped my coffee and got to work. I had broken it up into three piles, trash, donate, and keep. I told myself that the keep pile would only be for very intimate pieces of clothing. I wasn't going to cling to everything I had a memory with. I hadn't worn any of this stuff in a very long time, so I wouldn't miss it. The trash pile was filled with old dirty cut-off shirts and holy socks and underwear that I guess I thought I should keep for some reason. You never know when you're going to need boxers that were ripped so badly that they look like a skirt. The donate pile was growing larger and larger, including old band shirts, polos, and even a hideous yellow turtleneck sweater with rhinestones on it. I don't know what phase I was going through, but I decided it was better left in the trash pile. Hell, I might even burn it. I was making great progress. My floor was bare after about an hour of work, and I could finally squeeze into the closet to work on what was on the hangers on the top shelf. I walked into the closet, and a black shirt hanging in the back caught my attention. What? I didn't know I still had this shirt. I pulled it out, and sure enough, it was a black Class of 05 t-shirt. See, see, this shirt had some significance. I was wearing it the day that my dad died, 15 years ago. I was a year out of high school and still wearing my class shirts. I know, kind of lame, I guess. I, uh, I took the news hard. It didn't change out of that shirt for probably three days. I just stayed in bed and cried. It was the first time I had ever lost anyone, and I hadn't seen this shirt since. I remember I couldn't wear it afterwards because it reminded me too much of that day. I took the shirt off the hanger and held on to it for a minute. Tears began to fill my eyes, so I thought I'd take a break and grab another cup of coffee. 
While in the kitchen, I reminisced about all the good times I had with my dad. I tried not to think about the shirt or that day. I ate a blueberry muffin and then ventured back into my room. I walked into the closet again and grabbed a few hangers with shirts on them. I held each one up to examine it and then took off the hanger to toss it to its respective pile. One by one, the hangers began to pile up in the corner of the room. I grabbed another handful of hangers, but when I got to the second shirt, I was taken aback for a moment. It was a white collared short sleeve button up. It was the shirt I was wearing the last time I saw my wife alive. She had been sick in the hospital for some time. She'd gotten a rare form of cancer and it hit her hard. From the day she found out, it's like everything started moving and fast forward. Her health began to decline rapidly. I mean, she still enjoyed putting on makeup every morning. So that day, I held her in my arms for hours and there were black mascara stains all over the shoulder of my shirt. I remember I told her everything was going to be okay. I told her how much I loved her and that we were going to make it through this. I I talked about the beach house we stayed at a few years back and how as soon as she got out of there, we we would go back. I mean, I I lied to her. She passed away the next morning. I couldn't believe this shirt was in here. I couldn't believe I, I didn't wash it. That was three years ago and the stains on the shirt still looked fresh. They even still felt kind of wet. I also didn't remember hanging it up. Why would I have hung the shirt up without washing it? I was growing so sad and confused. This is starting to freak me out. Someone playing a prank on me? There was no way. I mean, how would they even have known? I have no family left. No one would have any idea that these shirts have relevance to me. I hugged the shirt and smelled it. It still smelled like her. The scent took me to that memory and I began to weep. God, I miss her. I sat on the floor, gripping the shirt to my face for quite a while. I wiped my tears and put the shirt in the keep pile. Suddenly, while looking through the closet, I caught a strong smell of smoke. I panicked for a second and rushed out of the closet and into the kitchen, but the smell was gone. I walked all around the house searching for the source of it, but found nothing. Not until I went back into the closet. I dug through the remaining pieces of clothing. At the top of the closet was a stack of shirts that seemed to be the culprit. I grabbed them and threw them on the ground, expecting to see a source of the fire. I kicked the stack over, and I saw a small, red Power Rangers shirt. I shook my head rapidly in disbelief. No, no fucking way. There is no fucking way. You see... One winter night, when I was nine years old, my house caught fire while we were sleeping. Something must have gotten into the heater or something, but they never found out. Luckily, my dad got us out of there in time. I remember smoke filling my room and my dad bursting in to grab me. This was the shirt I was wearing that night. It was the only thing I owned that survived the fire. I picked it up. It reeked of smoke. There was no way I should still have this. There is no way it should still smell so strongly of smoke. I mean, shit, that was like 20 years ago. I knew I hadn't packed it with any of my stuff. I had moved three different times since then. I didn't know what the hell was going on, but I was terrified to look in the closet again. So I stopped going through it. I shut the door because it was making me feel crazy. I bagged up the trash and donate piles. I took the trash out to the dumpster and put the donate in my car. I had to get out of the house, so I went ahead and dropped the clothes off. 
When I got home, I passed out on the couch in my living room. I tried to clear my head of everything that had happened earlier. I thought maybe if I just went to sleep, I'd wake up and it would have all been a dream. I woke up that night after hearing a loud thud come from my room. Still in a daze, I rushed into the bedroom. The closet light was on. My heart was beating out of my chest. I grabbed a stone I keep as a door stopper. Hey, who's in there? I inched towards the door with the stone up in the air, ready to strike any intruder that happened to be there. I swung the door open quickly and let out a yell, and then I stopped dead in my tracks. The closet was empty. It was empty, aside from a pressed black suit and a pair of dress shoes beneath it. It seemed unworn, brand new. I didn't recognize it. I slammed the door and ran out of the room. Clearly someone was messing with me. I plan on going to the police, but as I'm relaying this, my chest feels like it's tightening up. I uh, think I need to stop by the ER first. In our final tale, we meet a woman, now an adult, but who, while in high school, was badly bullied by a classmate. So when she receives a letter from her former bully asking her for a reunion so there can be atonement for the terrible behavior, the woman agrees to meet so there can be healing. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author E.W.H. Thornton, The only catch is, the meeting must take place in a strange, isolated island community at one of their rather unique festivals. Performing this tale are Katabel Ansari, Guy Woodward, and Ilana Charnel, and featuring a special musical performance by Era Lee Brighton. So seek to offer or ask for forgiveness. It can be immensely healing for your soul. But be wary if you're asked to sing for us soon again. The ocean's color fades as you sail closer to the North Pole. The same dilution of light that washes out the winter sky, imbuing the water with a stark, haggard pallor, as if the whole world is poised on the bloodless lip of a hooked fish. Here, where the North Atlantic and the Southern Arctic Oceans bleed together, and the Norwegian current bends back on itself to form the twisting snarl of the subpolar gyre, A speck of land rises above the waves. Its name is an artifact from a dead Proto-Celtic language whose closest English equivalent is Kukliath. 
I never would have known it existed if Catherine's letter hadn't found me. I took it out again as I stood alone on the ferry boat's foredeck, sandwiched between the gray slate of the sky above and the gray churn of the ocean below. Despite its alien origin, the letter felt like my last connection to home. The anachronistic solidity of a physical piece of paper with handwritten words on it, feeling like a tether to a place more secure than I was now. Standing uneasily atop warped wooden boards while waves crashed against the boat with suicidal force. Somehow the letter made it okay, or at least bearable. I read it again, despite having already read it more times than I could count. Despite having memorized it before, I even bought the plane ticket that bore me over the Atlantic. Dear Madhu Kapoor, You probably don't remember me. I don't know. As I reread that first sentence, I'm already tempted to start this over, but I promised I wouldn't. There's no going back. No way to undo what's already happened. I understand that now. Really understand it for the first time in my life. I guess what I really meant by writing, you probably don't remember me, is I hope you managed to forget me. I confess that's what I managed to do to you until I came here and learned the truth. I don't mean I forgot you ever existed. I mean I convinced myself I never really meant to hurt you. My life has changed since then. I've changed since then. The people I've met have taught me a new way to live. And I know the only way I'll ever be free is to truly repent. To apologize to you in person. My studies have taken me to a small island far northwest of Great Britain called Cuclea. Since arriving, I've learned a great deal both about the unique people who live here and myself. And I've come to realize something. I have to make amends, and I want you to be here when I do it. Attached are directions on how to reach the island. Getting here is difficult, but not impossible. The seas are rough in late autumn. But I'm afraid that's when Clen's day falls on Kugliat's calendar. One more thing I can't change. I have no right to ask this of you, but it would mean everything to me if you could come. And I can make my expiation to you in person. Sincerely, Catherine Mason. I had to look up that word, expiation. Noun, the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. Atonement. The boat puttered into dock as I pocketed the letter, and the ferryman lashed it in place with a length of rope, the same faded tan as the pier's skeletal oak boards. As I stuck my hands into my jacket pockets in a futile attempt to warm them, I found myself instinctually clutching the letter again, holding on to it for dear life. Catherine was wrong. Or, to put it another way, her hopes that I'd forgotten her were misplaced. 
After we'd parted ways in high school, Catherine went to Ithaca College and graduated with a degree in archaeology that took her to an excavation site in southern Turkey. Thus began a study of obscure ancient Greek culture that led Catherine in a northwestern path across Europe. All in hopes of proving her pet theory that ancient Greek culture had secretly endured to the present day. This was despite the fact that anyone with access to Wikipedia could tell you genuine ancient Greek culture died out before the Middle Ages. Catherine's online behavior didn't exactly inspire confidence. The farther northwest her studies took her, the more disconnected from reality she became. Her updates growing more infrequent and incoherent until somewhere around the Dutch Faroe Islands in the North Atlantic, she just stopped posting, having seemingly dropped off the face of the earth. Her silence endured for more than a year, something I'd regularly confirm as I checked her social media accounts at least once a day. When her letter finally reached me, it was deeply jarring, like getting a message from a dead woman. Still, I didn't question it, made no attempt to resist the pull that drew me from America to this moment. Shuffling carefully down a misshapen pier to Kukliat's fog-blanketed shore. A flickering orange light swam out of the milky haze, growing brighter until a middle-aged white man holding a torch materialized, a modest smile on his face, and a dull glint in his eyes. Sing. He said it the way other people say hello. You must be Madre Kapoor. I'm Hector. You knew I was coming? Hector leaned in to get as clear a look at me as the dense fog would allow. I got a better look at him, too, the torchlight revealing thin black hair, tinged with grey, and a face hewn with deep lines. Yes, Madre. Catherine told us all about you, how she invited you to share in a special little cleansed day festival. We didn't know if you'd show up, but it's tradition to stand vigil at the quay for potential visitors, whether we expect them or not. It's great to see you. This is the first time in ten years that someone's actually shown up. Please, come with me. I'll show you to your lodgings. He turned around and walked back into the haze, beckoning for me to follow with a swoop of his torch. Please stay close. This place gets foggy from time to time, but it's almost never this thick. I'm sure it'll clear up in time for the festival. Just keep an eye on the torch and give a shout if you lose track of it. I followed Hector carefully, the streets of Kukliath proving so crude I could barely tell the difference when the random assortment of stones on the rocky beach morphed into the organized chaos of a cobblestone street. Where's Catherine? Getting ready. She's eager to show herself to you, of course. Sorry if I sound like a broken record, but tradition dictates the visitor not see the penitent until the god of sin has been vanquished. Hector glanced at me, an abashed smile on his face. That's what we call the effigy. Sorry, I'm sure it sounds crazy. I was kind of hoping Catherine already explained everything. 
You just accept this stuff when you grow up with it. He waved the torch. I have to admit, now that you're here, holding this thing feels kind of dumb. No, not at all. I exclaimed, feeling mortified for embodying the stereotype of the disdainful tourist. The torch is cool. Hector looked at the torch as if for the first time, surprised anything in his life could qualify as cool. I plowed ahead, eager to change the subject. What you said before, sing, is that tradition too? What? Back at the dock when we met, you said sing instead of hello. I thought of Catherine's theory about ancient Greek culture enduring to the present day. Is it like how the Iliad and the Odyssey began with the word sing when Homer asks the muse of poetry to inspire him? Iliad? Odyssey? What of those? I shook my head. Never mind, it's nothing. So much for Catherine's theory. I thought at least the Odyssey was required reading the world over. By that standard, the North Minneapolis suburb where Catherine and I went to high school had more authentic, enduring ancient Greek culture than Kukliath. It raised the question of why Catherine had stayed here for over a year. Why she was participating in a ceremony that had nothing to do with her research. Since Hector wouldn't know, I switched topics again. Cleansed day is tomorrow, right? Hector nodded. Yep, midday. What do you do on cleansed day? Catherine didn't tell you? No, she just invited me. Hector's expression darkened for the first time since we'd met. Well, we do lots of stuff. There's feasting and singing and a bonfire and people dress up. The most important thing is vanquishing the god of sin. Expiation. I said, quoting Catherine's letter. Yes, all the year's sin is cleansed away. Everything? No matter how bad the sin is, it all gets cleansed? Well, it depends. On what? On how direct you are in your participation. I was obviously making Hector uncomfortable. Still, I might have pressed him further if a vast shape hadn't abruptly emerged from the fog. Here we are. We stood before a squat, two-story building. Its walls consisted of stones so dark, they looked like fossilized mud, while the facade was cloudy glass and wood slathered in coats of red and green paint that somehow managed to appear both dark and faded at the same time. A sign hanging from an iron bar above the door identified it as a pub named the Scalded Calf. Hector deposited his torch in a sconce made of the same black iron and opened the door. A bell jingled merrily and I entered without a second thought, 
seduced by the promise of light and warmth. Inside, the scalded calf was the sort of classic pub you could find anywhere in Britain, from the pockmarked dartboard to the tarnished brass fixtures to the disarmingly attractive woman behind the bar. Sing. Hello. I replied as if my outsider status wasn't obvious enough. Sing, Hector. Sing, Penelope. Penelope returned her attention to me, and I was stunned by her beauty, her slender limbs and faded blue eyes, and blonde hair blushing into auburn. Magicapur, I presume? I nodded. Yes, does everyone here know about me? Penelope's smile revealed a neat line of ivory teeth. I think so. It's a small island. Everyone talks to everyone, especially in the run-up to Cleanse Day. We all just adore Catherine. She's a true poet. Hector told me it's tradition not to see her until the... I trailed off, having already forgotten the phrase. Penelope spoke as if she and Hector were both reading from the same script. The god of sin is vanquished. Penelope will get you settled in. I'll have to help with the preparations. Sing for us soon again. Sing for us soon again. Hector left, the closing door producing another merry tinkle from the bell above it. Shall I show you to your lodgings, madame? Sure. I knew I was being a drag, but the exhaustion and unease swirling inside me quashed any desire to play along. This way, Miss Kapoor. Penelope led me to a set of stairs in the back. I warn you, it's a little cramped. You might have noticed we don't get many visitors here. I followed her up the second floor, careful to maintain my balance on the narrow steps. The room above the pub was what I expected. A hovel, small and bare as a monk's cell. The bed, wardrobe desk and lamp were enough to fill it to capacity, leaving barely enough space for me to wedge myself inside and sit down on the bed to an accompanying screech from ancient mattress springs. Cozy, I said, trying not to sound sarcastic. Exhaustion was giving my personality an edge I didn't like. I tried to relax, reminding myself that bitchiness was a luxury I couldn't afford on such a tiny, obscure island. Everyone on Kukliath was white besides me. Catherine Mason's skin tone was defined by genes from Eastern Europe, and growing up under a steady barrage of Minnesota winters, yet she had no doubt represented the very height of alien exoticism until I arrived. Everyone had been exceedingly nice so far, but I knew a single remark could be all it took to transform hospitality to hostility. As I shifted on the mattress, I resolved to not say or do anything that could possibly be construed as controversial until I returned to a place that had reliable cell phone coverage. Can I get your bags for you? I dragged the edges of my mouth up in a forced smile, 
I didn't bring any. I'm just here for cleanse today, so I figured I'd travel light. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Who's the god of sin? Penelope's expression hardened, and when she spoke her voice was flat as glass and dry as sand. The god of sin is what we are and must not be. What we hate because it is what we truly owe. Our greatest ally in unbecoming. Past's death and future's curse. A true begotten enemy. Penelope reverted back to her usual self as if snapping out of a trance. I hope that helps. Do you have any other questions? If anything, I had more questions than before. But I said, No, that covers it. Thank you. My pleasure. She backed away carefully ducking under the low door frame as she exited into the narrow hall. I'll let Catherine know you're here if Hector hasn't spilled the beans yet. Please don't hesitate to get in touch if you need anything. Sing for us soon again. Penelope closed the door, and I was alone for what felt like the first time since my trip began. I relaxed, letting myself fall back onto the bed. It was a mistake. The way the profoundly uncomfortable mattress slammed into me forced old memories to the surface. The sensation of lying in the hospital bed I'd landed in after I tried to kill myself. I tried to resist, but the similarities were too striking to ignore. Both beds felt like metal slabs, the sensation of lying on them more like being on a mortuary table or sacrificial altar. This is what adulthood really is, I thought as I stared up at the featureless stone ceiling, awakening to a world that's hard and cold and remote, then finding that world inside yourself. Or vice versa. I had known I liked girls more than boys since I was a child, but it took a long time for the implications to dawn on me. It's always hard to give a name to a feeling, even in the best of circumstances. When puberty finally hit, the feelings I harbored for certain other girls didn't feel like anything that could fit into any pre-existing category. It was something that could only be expressed impressionistically. It was poetry. It was music. I know now that one's first gay romance can be mind-bendingly intoxicating, even by adolescent standards. The first time someone truly sees and understands you, making for an almost religious experience that can make a lover seem like a savior. At least, that was how I felt with Catherine Mason. It started at a party thrown by Andy Zabrowski, scion of all things popular and cool at our high school. When Catherine came on to me, I dismissed her at first. Straight girls regularly kissed each other at parties to get attention, and while I already knew who Catherine was, we were strangers to each other before that moment. It took me a while to realize she was genuinely flirting with me. And I still wince when I remember my own crude attempts at flirting back. 
I grew so painfully aware of how other people were looking at us that when Catherine finally asked if I wanted to get out of here, I agreed before she even finished the sentence. As we wandered the suburban sprawl, talking became easier. At some point, her hand found mine, and I came to feel like the dome of the night sky was incredibly close, as if I could feel the distinct light of every individual star prickling across my body. Somehow, I knew exactly what it would feel like if I cared to reach up and trace my fingers over the neat slice of moon slung low above us, cool and smooth, with a scintillating edge of static electricity. I'd grown up on these streets, yet with Catherine it felt as if I was seeing them for the first time. And why not? The world was young, the night was radiant, being myself was suddenly a good thing instead of a life sentence. We drifted to an empty playground and settled into adjacent swings. We kissed, and I hadn't known it was possible for anything to feel so right. The next month passed in a sublime blur. My schoolwork suffered, though not nearly as much as my parents' reaction would have you believe. They thought I was on drugs or had joined a cult or gone insane or all three. I did everything I could to keep my relationship with Catherine a secret from them, which was ridiculous since the opposite was happening at school, where Catherine was more than generous with her public displays of affection. Our popularity skyrocketed, everyone wanting to bathe in the reflected glow of the novel lesbians who were out, proud, and most important, by far, conventionally attractive. In retrospect, Catherine's true motives are obvious, my obliviousness to them more than a little pathetic. I always found ways to explain away how her ardor cooled the moment we were out of public, coming to life again just long enough for a social media post or a party. Even then, anything resembling real passion was held in reserve for when Andy Zabrowski just happened to be watching. I would later learn Catherine even told Andy she might be able to get me to participate in a three-way. Andy, no doubt, found the prospect of fucking us both at the same time enticing, though it's hard to imagine what a three-way would actually entail for a trio of awkward teenagers for whom a two-way is already often too much to handle. When Catherine ghosted me, I retreated into denial. When I saw her and Andy together in the cafeteria, making every possible effort to broadcast their new status as boyfriend and girlfriend, I didn't feel anything. Rather, what I experienced was the opposite of feeling. A rapacious nothing that came to define, first me, then everything around me. I'm lucky enough to not know what being raped feels like, but when I think about it, my mind flashes back to what I felt then. A violation so profound it negates everything. Crushing you into yourself until nothing remains but debris scattered across the empty space you used to inhabit. The humiliation of pretending I was something when I felt like nothing soon became unbearable. I know better now. I know I had other options. But these things 
seem to make a kind of ironclad sense when you're young. I don't remember taking the overdose. I don't even remember being consciously aware of the fact that there were two large bottles of aspirin in the house. I do remember the pain. My hearing wiped out by tinnitus. My lungs burning with hyperventilation. Nausea like every organ in my body was twisting in reverse. A fever that made me both unbearably hot and cold at the same time. Every muscle in my body resounding with a savage ache. I never passed out, no matter how much I wanted to. In fact, I wouldn't really sleep for about a week. I remember my father finding me, the ambulance ride, the emergency room, a tube being forced down my throat, the contents of my stomach being pumped out into a plastic basin resembling a litter box. I remember the feeling that if I could just have nothing like that inside me ever again, I could survive. That if I could control everything entering my body, I could control how I felt. Thoughts I can, in retrospect, recognize as the first stirrings of what would, in time, become a full-blown eating disorder. Most of all, I remembered what the contents of my pumped stomach looked like. A hideous, black, slurry liquid darkness, so putrid I didn't understand how it could possibly have come from inside me. It seemed immense somehow. A dilute black ocean, infested with a hundred white islands of half-digested aspirin tablets. I wanted to tell the doctors not to pour it down the drain, that it would contaminate everything it touched, and had to be contained like nuclear waste. But the tube was still lodged in my throat. Even after they dragged the tube out, I wouldn't be saying anything for some time. Which was why my parents brought my laptop to the hospital so I could communicate. I was too tired to lie. I told them everything. Then I went online and told the whole school everything. I don't remember exactly what I wrote, and I've never gone back to look. All I remember is the feeling, an act of turning emotions into words that felt similar to expelling the rancid contents of my stomach. I returned to myself, to Kugliath, and sat up on the bed in my room above the scalded calf pub. I didn't know if I'd fallen asleep or become lost in reminiscing, but much time had passed. The fog was gone, and sunlight streaming through the lone window, shafts of radiance illuminating a placard hung on the far wall. It was in perfect condition wood-painted bright green, inscribed with gold letters that practically glowed in the newborn sunlight. I don't know how I could have missed it. It was written in a language I didn't know. I didn't even realize it was a quote until my eyes landed on the attribution. Soren Kierkegaard, the famous 19th century Danish philosopher and existential pioneer. The quote was in Dutch. It was one more nail in the coffin of Catherine's theory that Kukleoth was secretly a haven of ancient Greek culture. I grabbed my phone and took a picture, resolving to Google an English translation when I returned to a place with cell coverage. 
I was drawn to the window by the sound of chanting. I looked through the crude glass and saw what had to be the cleansed day procession moving down the street. I peered anxiously at the door. Suddenly, my tiny cell of a room felt extremely appealing, at least in contrast to whatever was going on outside. I told myself I was being ridiculous, as well as paranoid and xenophobic. Was there anything in the world more wholesome than a small-town parade? Catherine was out there. I had to reach her no matter what. Seeking motivation, I took Catherine's letter out of my pocket and unfolded it. Blood. My stomach dropped. My much-abused gag reflex was triggered, forcing bile up into my throat. I resisted the urge to drop the letter in disgust, forcing myself to hold on, forcing myself to look. It was written in blood. Catherine's distinct handwriting in shades of scarlet and crimson. I knew it was impossible. I'd looked at her letter hundreds of times, memorized every word, every stroke rendered in blue ballpoint pen. The only possible explanation was that some sick bastard had snuck into my room while I was unaware and switched the letter out. Someone who knew who Catherine was, who I was, who had seen the letter and reproduced it perfectly. That narrowed the field down considerably. Narrowed it down so far, the only remaining suspect was Catherine herself. But that was insane. Furious, I ripped the door open and stalked down to the pub below. Penelope stood at the window with her back to me, staring fixedly through the misshapen glass at amorphous human shapes slouching past. What the hell is this? I demanded, brandishing the letter. Penelope regarded me with a remote expression, the look of someone who'd been interrogated for so long they'd lost the will to answer. Sing, Madri. I shoved the letter in her face. Who did this? Penelope's eyes drifted down. Catherine did. Isn't that why you're here? No, it was never written in blood. Of course it was, Madri. Penelope took the letter from me and inspected it closely. All Cleanse Day invitations are written in the God of Sin's blood. It's tradition. The God of Sin? I snatched the letter back. Are you in... I looked at it. The paper fluttered down to the scalded calf's floor. Even after letting go of it, my hand felt dirty. I squeezed my eyes shut, but the image was waiting for me in the darkness. It wasn't written in human blood. But I'd recognize that substance anywhere. God of sin's blood? Yes. He who is what we are and must not be. What we hate because... Shut up! 
I forced myself to look down at the letter. The words were not just black, but a faded black that could be mistaken for diluted ink if it didn't have the gluttonous quality of a bodily fluid. I knew if I held the letter to my nose and smelled it, I would immediately be taken back to that emergency room. The caustic reek of my own pumped stomach contents attacking my nostrils. Pushing through the latest wave of nausea, I grabbed Penelope by the shoulders. Where's Catherine? Tell me! She's at the end of the parade route, Madri. The town square, where all cleanse day expiation takes place. Her eyes suddenly locked onto mine. You should hurry. She's waiting for you. I jerked open the pub's door with enough force to knock the bell above it to the floor. Penelope's farewell was cut off by the people of Kukliath, who, now that I was among them, didn't seem to be chanting so much as moaning, raising and lowering their voices in a slow, toneless rhythm that mimicked the raw churn of ocean waves. Being dragged along with the crowd was so disorienting, I didn't even notice the sunlight that had revealed the placard and my room was gone until I reached the town square with the rest of Kuklia. Here, the sky was a dreary ashen shroud draped over the cobblestone vista. At the center of the square stood a massive wooden effigy that could only be the god of sin that was to be vanquished this cleansed day. A giant carved figure that had to be five stories tall, at least twice as high as any building on the island. The detail was spectacular. Intricate wood carving depicting the god of sin as an enormous man standing upright with a smug expression on his face and his arms raised in triumph. His mouth was crinkled in a vain sneer and his eyes radiated confidence. I hated him immediately. The crowd parted, and two torch-bearing women standing atop dual high platforms mounted on creaking scaffolding were wheeled forward over the cobblestones until they were within reach of the idol's eyes. They both lowered their torches. The fire made the god of sin's eyes shimmer as if alive as both platforms were wheeled away. It wasn't the placid, enlightening gaze of a benevolent deity. Neither was it the stern, judgmental glare of a wrathful one. Instead, the god of sin's eyes shimmered with melancholy. The pellucid gleam of eyes, wet with tears that had yet to spill over. And spill over they did. The intensifying flames defying physics to travel down the idol's face blackening its cheeks while descending to its mouth, where it transformed a smug sneer into a grimace of abject despair. The fire raced across the wooden effigy. Soon, every part of him was engulfed in flame, creating a bonfire 70 feet tall. As fire consumed the idol, it began to change. 
the god of sin's eyes collapsed inward. His mouth became distended, opening further and further until it hung again. The arms fell, not collapsing the way burning wood typically does. Rather, its timbers gave way one by one, so the limbs descended slowly, drifting lower until his gesture of triumph had decayed into one of pleading. His legs followed suit, succumbing gradually so the burning figure sank to its knees. The wood holding his mouth together partially broke apart, gaping wider until it yawned open like a snake's unhooked jaw. It was then that the music began. I can't describe it. Not in any way that'll do justice to its sublime beauty. But I'll try. Though absent of any lyrics, the music describes another world immeasurably better than this one. A world without beginning, or end, or sin. A world that's too beautiful to exist, and can only ever be hinted at. Obscure gestures intimating what can never truly be communicated. The music doesn't evoke any one single emotion. Rather, the feelings it elicits are intoxicating in their contradictions. The song accomplishing a kind of romantic alchemy that finds the rhapsody in despair and the tranquility in rage. All concepts wrapped in bittersweet longing. An acute awareness of some indescribable lack, a fundamental missing component of who and what you are that you're only truly aware of now. Now that every part of you is being made to resonate with the God of Sin's Requiem. The music ascended in concert with the God of Sin's degradation. The more debased the effigy became, the more soaring and rapturous the music grew. The god of sin began falling into himself as the fire consumed more and more of him. As the beams supporting his neck were burned away, his head slowly descended until it was cradled in his hands. It was at this point of absolute dejection that the music reached its ultimate crescendo, expressing in one long climactic note the most desperate, sincere pleading. Forgive me. Forgive me. I beg you. Then the tones began to fall, wails dissolving into whispers as the god of sin's back snapped to send his body sprawling to the ground in a plume of smoke and ash that sent a storm of embers swirling upward to the sky, which darkened in response. The last note died away. The last flame flickered out. We were left with nothing but a column of smoke, and a mountain of ashes. So little of the effigy remained, it appeared as if it had been cremated in an oven instead of burned in the open air. The crowd surrounding me exploded in jubilation. 
all of Kukliet resounding with joy. It was almost like the smoke extending its pale tendrils over the town carried a euphoric drug, so everyone around me was intoxicated with the joy. They acted like they'd escaped the burden of a lifetime, their elation persisting even as the sky turned black. Sang Madre. I turned to see Hector. His expression was somber, but not unfriendly. Catherine would like to see you now. Take me to her. Watching the effigy's gruesome demise had only hardened my resolve. The greater the toll of seeking out Catherine became, the more determined I was to reach her. I was on my own personal pilgrimage. The danger was part of it. If it was easy, it would mean nothing. That's why I was still laboring under the delusion that I was ready to see Catherine. That I ever would be. I followed Hector. The sea of humanity parted before him, the people of Kukliath giving him the wide berth of someone who was either held in great esteem or carrying a contagious disease as the first tentative drops of rain began to fall from the dark sky. The center of the town square was overflowing with ashes. Hector waded into the shifting gray mass without hesitation. I followed even as it proved almost unbearably hot. By the time we reached ground zero of the God of Sin's charred remains, my calves felt like they were on the verge of being cooked. So when the black sky opened up in a cool downpour, I was, in fact, at first, relieved. Madre. Hector beckoned me over to something that stood out from the rest of the ash heap. As I approached... I saw it was a metal cylinder the size of a small car. Rain hissed against its hot surface, water sizzling away into the steam so quickly it barely managed to wash away enough ash to reveal the bronze beneath. The cleansing intensified with the rain, and a similar hissing sound drew my attention upward. My eyes traced the course of at least half a dozen pipes that rose out from the chamber, twining upward until they were widened to become horns where the god of sin's mouth had once been. As the ashes washed away, I became more impressed by the huge instrument's understated elegance, though I didn't know how anything could produce the sublime music I'd heard as the god of sin was cleansed. Hector produced a large iron hook. It's time. He lodged it in the chamber and pulled a hatch open. Her expiation. Inside the spotless bronze interior were bones... A virgin, white human skeleton devoid of flesh. A one-woman ossuary. Her expiation is concluded. The god of sin is vanquished. 
We are cleansed for another year, thanks to your friend. My friend. My friend. Catherine Mason. Yes, she was wonderful, wasn't she? I wish it was possible to preserve the music of expiation, but the recordings never come out right. It was inside me again. The screaming, nothing. The great bottomless abyss that did not devour me so much as become me. I thought I'd gotten away, but it had simply lain dormant, waiting. The empty sockets of Catherine's skull gazed up at me in silent appeal, still begging for my forgiveness. You worthless, miserable bitch! That's not called for, Madri. Catherine has made her expiation. I wasn't talking to Catherine. The rain was transforming the ashes into a slurry that sucked at me like quicksand. No, that wasn't it. It was the smell that forced me to realize what it really was. The same stench that attacked me in the emergency room when they pumped my stomach, but amplified a thousandfold. Not a plastic, small basin of the stuff, but a pool. A lake. An ocean. My feet and calves began to burn in a way that had nothing to do with heat. This was a different kind of burning. Not infernal, but chemical. I looked down. Everything below my knees was immersed in execrable black slime. There was something else. They were everywhere, floating atop a surface pelted by rain so it seethed as if alive were innumerable specks of small, white, partially dissolved tablets. We are all now without sin thanks to Catherine. Is there anything you would like to say to her? I reached out and placed my hand on the small, metal chamber Catherine had been cooked alive in. The instrument that transformed her screams of agony into the most beautiful music. I wanted the hot metal to burn me, scar me, sear the flesh from my hand and hurt me in a way I'd never been hurt before. But I hadn't been fast enough. It wasn't even warm. The rain had washed it clean. Rejoice! As Catherine is redeemed, so are we. Her penance is her own. Her sacrifice is our own. The god of sin is vanquished for another year. Even you, Madre. I reached into the brazier, snatched out a small bone, and ran. I'd need evidence, otherwise no one would believe me. I didn't want to believe it myself, but there was no denying what happened. What was still happening as I stormed off through the sludge? Toward the street, the people of Kuklia had paraded down. Toward the dock. Toward anywhere but here. The further I ran, the deeper the sludge became. Slurping upward to engulf my knees and thighs and waist. The outside world shrank 
as the foul liquid claimed more of me, pushing everything that wasn't poison and bile away, drowning all in ravenous sickness, so progress was impossible, safety unreachable. It didn't feel like I reached solid ground, but that I was spat out onto it. Placid rain-drenched faces regarded me with dull curiosity as I staggered to my feet. No one resisted as I pushed through the crowd, ragdolls following me with eyes receding back into vacant sockets, mouth widening into gaping maws, flesh melting so features ran together. Rain pummeled me as I burst out of the square and raced down the street. The buildings were taller now, their warped facades looming over a boulevard whose cobblestones jutted out randomly, the protruding remains of some ancient fossilized god exposed as rain washed away the eons. The fact that no one was chasing me made it worse, indicating there was no need, that escape was a delusion. I held on to the small bone I'd taken as hard as I could, clinging to it the same way I clung to Catherine's letter, its physical presence reminding me I still had a purpose. I ran past the pub I'd stayed in, the very idea of setting foot in it now piercing me with revulsion. The sign hanging above the door now read, The Brazen Bull, in clear, unmistakable letters above the image of a brass bull suspended over a roaring fire. Inside, Catherine Mason was being cooked alive, flesh bubbling and blackening as her face twisted in a scream. What remained of her eyes watched me as I passed, a look not of accusation, but appeal, eyes that begged my forgiveness even as they began to melt. I ran even faster. I reached the pier just in time to see the ferry receding into the distance. The wood was rotten now, bearing colonies of jagged barnacles and tendrils of grasping seaweed. It threatened to give way with every footfall right up to the point where I left off it. My scream for the ferry to come back cut off as I plunged into the freezing ocean. I screamed again when I finally managed to get my head above water, barely managing to make a sound before a wave drove me back under. I tried to swim toward the fairy's fading light, but the ocean thwarted every attempt at progress, beating me back and drowning my screams. My last call for help was cut off by a mouthful of brine as I lost any remaining hint of buoyancy. Benthic depths rose up to embrace me. Eternal shadow welcoming me as a spider welcomes a fly. The next thing I knew, I was vomiting seawater onto the deck of the ferry. My body so numb with cold, I couldn't tell if I was shivering or convulsing. All I wanted to do was look at my right hand and see if I'd held on to the final trace of Catherine I managed to steal. But my body had passed beyond my control. 
I felt nothing. As the captain hastily yanked off my wet clothes, carried me to a bed, and wrapped me in emergency blankets. He took my left hand and rubbed it between his own, then tried to do the same with my right, but couldn't manage to pry my fist open and settled for cradling it in his armpit. Eventually, my fingers began to hurt, feeling returning to them in the form of a burning ache, as if they resented being forced back to life. Time passed in a familiar haze of agony, and the dull, sterile lights of the fairy's modest sleeping quarters looked the same as the dull, sterile lights of the small hospital I was eventually remanded to after we safely reached shore. A tiny, blank room that was just like the one a younger me landed in after Catherine Mason betrayed me, and I tried to kill myself. The room where I turned despair into rage, put trembling fingers to keyboard, and wrote an online screed denouncing Catherine to my fellow high schoolers as a psychopath, a predator, a whore. The moment I hit post, I was overcome with an exhaustion so profound I barely managed to close the laptop. Too drained to stay awake, but too damaged to sleep. I had spent the majority of the following week in a semi-conscious twilight state. I have no memory of that time, but I was eventually told I received many visits from peers eager to express their sympathies. Even the popular boy Catherine Mason has used me to seduce, delivered a tearful apology at my bedside. I later learned Andrew Zabrowski told me he dumped Catherine, then talked about how he didn't know about our relationship and never would have looked twice at Catherine if he had known, and he had such profound respect for my gender and sexual orientation and other bullshit. I'm glad I wasn't cognizant to hear. Andrew also said something else. How great it was that everyone was coming together how he was leading the charge at the vanguard of the avenging forces marshaled against Catherine, and the crusade was going well, and she'd already been forced to delete all her social media accounts. Though this was just the beginning. Unlike Andrew Zabrowski, I really didn't know what was happening until the damage was done. Not that it makes me any less guilty. The online rumor mill was already running at full speed with the news of my attempted suicide, but the screed I posted from my hospital bed describing Catherine Mason as the worst kind of monster had the effect of weaponizing the gossip, transforming shock into outrage and provoking an avalanche of hate. As soon as it was clear whose side everyone was on, Andrew made sure to place himself at the head of the angry mob, portraying himself as almost as much a victim of Catherine's behavior as I was. As proof, he shared some topless selfies he claimed Catherine had sent him before she even approached him in person. It got worse from there. I don't blame him. I don't blame anyone. We were kids. That's what I try to tell myself. We hate women differently than we hate men. Once we decide to hate a woman, 
It is with an abiding, virulent intensity we seldom direct at men. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we love them more to begin with. No matter the reason, in the end, Catherine Mason was destroyed in my name. Destroyed in every way, it is possible to destroy someone without killing them. She transferred high schools. It didn't help. Her family moved to another state. It followed them. Attention eventually died away since even the most abiding online loathing serves at the pleasure of a microscopic public attention span. But it didn't fix anything. Catherine was branded. What she'd done and what had been done to her was now an inescapable part of a life that, to have any significance, must to some extent be lived online. It was now, and forever would be, the first thing anyone saw when they looked her up. I think that was part of the reason why she became obsessed with archaeology. The dead can't judge you. At least that's what I thought before I experienced Cleansed Day, before I fled Kukliath Island and landed back in a hospital bed, barely alive, holding on to pain as if letting go of it would kill me. When I finally pried the fingers of my right hand open and looked upon the small bone I'd managed to bring back with me, I knew better. The dead do judge, or at least always give us cause to judge ourselves. No doubt Catherine was eventually forced to reach the same conclusion when she found the past staring back at her. I didn't go to Cleanse today so Catherine could apologize to me. I went so I could apologize to her. The police came. I gave them the bone and told them everything. Then I laid back and let them say everything I knew they were going to say. There is no Kuglioth Island. The man who pulled me out of the ocean isn't a ferryman. He's a fisherman. No one's ever heard of something called Cleansed Day. It is impossible to extract DNA from human remains once they've been cremated. The brazen what? I didn't want to spend what remained of my life in an insane asylum on an obscure island in the far North Atlantic, so I quickly conceded that it all must have been a hallucination fueled by hypothermia. I waited until I was out of the hospital to see if my cell phone still worked. It did. I checked to see if it still contained the picture I'd taken of the placard with the Kierkegaard quote from my room above the pub. It did. With Google at my fingertips, it would have been easy to translate the Dutch, but I didn't have to. The photo of the inscription was in English now. What is a poet? An unhappy man who, in his heart, harbors a deep anguish, but whose lips are so fashioned that the moans and cries which pass over them are transformed into ravishing music. His fate is like that of the unfortunate victims whom the tyrant Phalaris imprisoned in a brazen bull and slowly tortured over a steady fire. Their cries could not reach the tyrant's ears so as to strike terror into his heart. 
When they reached his ears, they sounded like sweet music. And men crowd around the poet and say to him, Sing for us soon again. Which is as much to say, May new sufferings torment your soul, but may your lips be fashioned as before. For the cries would only distress us, but the music, the music, is delightful. Reading it brought back a memory. It was after I leapt off the pier into the ocean, when I was screaming for the ferry to come back while the waves beat me down and the cold pierced my flesh to gnaw at my bones. At one point, I came spluttering back to the surface and found I'd been turned around and was now looking back at Kukliath. I saw Penelope standing atop the pier, blonde hair radiant and blue eyes aglow, one hand raised in a gesture of calm farewell, as if she was watching me sail away instead of drown. Before another wave engulfed me, she said something. I shouldn't even have been able to see her, let alone hear her through the torrential rain and crashing waves. But her words were unmistakable. Sing for us soon again. The words followed me back to the other side of the Atlantic, continued ringing in my mind as I returned to my old home and my old life. At least, I tried to. I used to adore all kinds of music. Now, no matter what I'm listening to, all I feel is disappointment. After hearing the God of Sin's song, all other attempts at music seem like pale imitations, barely able to hint at the unearthly perfection of Catherine's screams as she burned alive. That music was her last gift to me, a vision of perfection intended as recompense for the pain she inflicted. I hate it. Now every night I dream of music and ashes of the bottomless ocean inside a woman's heart. Now every day is a battle. I make myself get up in the morning. I make myself eat and keep it down. I do everything I can to make myself think of anything but her, to feel anything other than guilt and the desire to sing. I've managed to hold on for now. I have work I try to take satisfaction in completing, a girlfriend whose affection I try to feel, food I try to savor, sex I try to enjoy. Sometimes I even succeed, however briefly. Such moments of fleeting relief have kept me going, kept my mind from becoming totally fixated on Kukliath, on the looming anniversary of Cleansed Day, of what majestic release it would be to give everything away in the name of expiation to cleanse myself by destroying myself. I know. I know. In those times when I can divert my attention from the music and think clearly that it isn't that simple, that it's easier to die for something than to live for it, and the seductive thrill of control elicited by deliberately harming yourself is a trap. Whether it's cutting yourself or 
or starving yourself, or pushing away the people who care about you, it will always leave you even emptier than before. And the same will always be true of the painful memories we chose to flagellate ourselves with. Shards of glass embedded in our minds too deeply to ever extract. The undead, eternal poetry of agony that is the abiding testament of all the people we hurt. The nightmares may be over, but the darkness will linger on, so long as you reside in the No Sleep Zone. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for joining us in the No Sleep Zone and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.